you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. All right, since absolutely no one asked, we have returned again. And by we, I mean me. It's Michael again, back with you, to give you another installment in the idea of a heretic. Dun, 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 dun. Those dastardly deviants who are devising, and I'm all out of D's, ways to send the disciples. There we go. There's another one to hell, apparently, because they have nothing better to do and because they like twisting the truth. So with all of that said, we are going to look at our second... I would say heretic, but I think we're going to look at our second group of heretics. And what the goal will be is, if we have gathered here together this week to tell you that teaching your secret knowledge kind of ruins the whole thing. And if you have absolutely, positively no idea what I'm talking about when I say that, then it's obvious you haven't spent any time in a seminary classroom. Because when you say secret knowledge, every seminary student on the planet goes, ooh, 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 the Gnostics. Yes, we all love the Gnostics, mainly because it's like Nat. It's spelled wrong. It's got a G on the front of it. And that's just because we've got nothing better to do. So... (coughs) And I'm kidding about that, by the way. It's because we take it from the Greek word gnosis, which actually begins with the gamma. We just don't say it in English. Like like the Animaniacs used to say, the P psychiatrist, because it's there, even though we don't do it. We can't just ignore it in English, but with the Gnostics, we do. Be they Platonists, Kabbalists, Valentinians, Manichees, Jungian psychologists, this is your favorite group of secret knowledge people. Now, when I say secret knowledge, I'm making a joke about them teaching it because that's one of those logical things that's never really made sense to me. What's the point of a secret knowledge that you try to teach to other people? That That's like Fight Club, right? The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. How did we get more people? The first rule of our secret knowledge is that it's secret. How do we get more people if we keep telling everyone the secret knowledge? But that point notwithstanding, the Gnostics were a group that arose, depending on who you ask, somewhere between the middle of the first and the beginning of the second century. The reason I say depending on who you ask is this is a group that is really centered in the 2nd century A.D. So when we say that, we mean the 100s. Excuse me. And what that does for us is we places them in the post-apostolic age. Now, the reason I say depending on who you ask is because you see the seeds of Gnosticism in the New Testament. You see it in the book of Revelation. You see it somewhat in the Gospel of John. Part of the reason the theory goes that John was so insistent in his epistles and in his gospel on the dichotomy between light and darkness is because he was actually refuting the Gnostics and their dualism, which would borrow the ideas of light and dark, good and evil, on equal footings and and fighting against one another, and that John is combating the seed movement of that, the beginnings of it. When we define a Gnostic, it's really, really hard. You probably know something about the Gnostics if you've watched the History Channel at Easter time for more than five minutes. You just didn't know that's what they were called. So 
coming out of the Nag Hammadi Library, which was a group of texts that have been discovered. Most of the Gnostic writings date to the second century. Now, when I say the Gnostic writings, you're going, huh? Hmm? They wrote books? Yes. And they wrote what we call pseudepigraphals or pseudepigraphal works. So a pseudepigraphal is something with a false name. Pseudepigrapha, false name. So things like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Apocryphon of John, which just sounds fun to say. When I was reading the Apocryphon of John, something you can say at parties to impress your friends about how much you know. These are all works that date into the second century, and if you would like, do a five-minute Google search for the Nag Hammadi texts, and you can actually find multiple websites that will let you read them for yourself, and you can actually evaluate them and say, okay, this is bunk. Why has this been such a big deal that the History Channel has been screaming about? And the answer is because it challenges the foundations of Christianity. What the Gnostics claimed was that they had a secret revelation or knowledge slash access to God. What that means is you think you know how to get to God. You think you understand what Christianity is actually all about, but you don't really know. But we're going to tell you because we have received a special revelation. We have received the divine download, and we will now tell you what is required to get to God. Great example of this is actually the Gospel of Judas, which remember they all they all made a big deal about a few years ago. Oh, we found this brand new thing, and nobody has ever seen this before, even though we've known about it for forty years, and it it just completely undermines and destroys all of Christianity and what you thought you knew you didn't know. Um, this was a, a book by Elaine Pagels. Bart Ehrman has seized on these things and tried to use them as a foundation underminer for Christianity. If you read the Gospel of Judas for like 10 minutes, you'll see that Judas is actually the hero of the Gospel. And you're going, do what? You mean the guy that killed Jesus? Does he not kill Jesus in this Gospel? No, 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 no. He does. And not only does he kill Jesus, he kills Jesus because Jesus needs him. Well, he doesn't kill him, but he gets him killed. Because Jesus needs to be killed, not for the forgiveness of sins, but so that he can be set free from that evil, icky, nasty flesh that is sinful, and his pure and holy spirit can be set free. Remember the dualism thing I, I made mention of? This is a big thing in Gnostic teaching. The concept of good and evil, right and wrong, left and right, yin and yang, being opposites. So in Gnostic teaching, you have the flesh, this skin that you walk around in. It is evil. Why? Because it's physical. Duh. And your spirit is good. Why? Because it's immaterial. Duh. It is uncorrupted. It is undefiled. And therefore, death is actually freeing your pure spirit from its sinful abode and freeing it to now be the righteous thing. Uh, we'll go with thing that it's supposed to be. And if you're going, that doesn't sound anything like my Bible, then you would be absolutely correct. This is part of the problem. Every man-made religion devolves into this. Every man-made religion, when given two minutes to itself, devolves into what the Gnostics did. A man-centered, checklist way by which what is wrong can be set right. This is one of your first markers and something that you really need to train yourself to look for when dealing with false religions or 
cults or, you know, any little old group that wants to, you know, pull you away is what have they done to give themselves credit for who they are and what they are doing? Because that is always, 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 always step number one when twisting and contorting scripture and Christianity. So the Gnostics tried to do is use their guru status, their ability to have and receive secret knowledge that you do not have, and then to communicate that to you to establish their own man-made system. And like every other man-made system, it gets fundamental things wrong. See if you can pick up on a few of them. All right. I need to be free of my physical body. Adam and Eve had physical bodies before they sinned. New heavens, new earth, new body, new creation. Wait a minute. How can a physical, by definition, be bad if God has actually made it and declared it good and God will recreate it and redeclare it good at the end? Wait a minute. What was the other one? Dualism, light and dark. You mean there's an evil and a good opposing forces? And I know what you're thinking. You're going, well, that sounds biblical. That's, that's God and Satan, right? And you would be like half right. But here's the thing. Does Satan have the same power God has? Does God deem Satan an equal and worthy adversary? Is your sin Satan's fault? <laughs> See, that's the one that really catches you. Christianity does not express a dualism. We like to think that it does. That Christianity expresses this idea that dualism has equal and opposite forces warring against each other. And our first thought is, well, yeah, that sounds about right. The forces of good, the forces of evil, but notice how they're not equal. Go to places like Job 1 and 2. What is going on? God, I mean, Satan needs permission from God to go after Job. If Satan says, if God says no, Satan's like, okay, I guess I can't go mess with Job today. And it's not like if God says no, Satan's gonna be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do it anyway. Watch this. <laughs> God is the almighty. He is the omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-present, and omniscient, all-knowing deity and creator. There is nothing that escapes his sight. Uh, Psalm 139. There is nothing that he is unaware of, and there is nothing that over, over which that he cannot and does not exercise his power, will, and might. Therefore, there is not an equal opposing force. Fast forward to the end. When you see the second coming of Jesus, Revelation, 20, uh, Revelation 29, oh goodness. If you can find Revelation 29 in your Bible, don't read it. It will not do you good. Revelation 19, where you see the sash and the sword and the flaming eyes and the robe and the whole bit. Well, the armies assemble, right? The armies of the, uh, of the Lamb and the armies of Satan, and they are opposite ends. And how quickly does that battle go down? It's, it's like two verses. Jesus speaks, they die, they're cast away. Woohoo, everybody, let's go get chips, we win. See, this is not an equal fight. It's not a fair fight. One side has God and the other side doesn't. Therefore, the other side is doomed. Not just a little bit, but completely. Now, this is why I say theology matters and it is practical to your life because this is the stuff that the world throws at you. This is the garbage that they package up and go, see, see, this is your, this is your uh, competitor to Christianity. This is the opposing side. Don't, don't you feel silly for having followed Jesus all this time? 
mean, Bart Ehrman does this because if you read Bart Ehrman's public uh, writings, his articles, and his popular books, and you listen to his popular lectures and presentations, you'll see a guy who is creating discord between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Thomas. Well, the early church picked this one, and they didn't pick that one. Except we actually have evidence that says the Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew and was written in the middle of the first century. And the Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas and was written in the early, at best, second century. So one has evidence of being written in the 60s. The other has evidence of being written in the 120s. Those aren't equal things. And if you read Bart Ehrman's scholarly work, you see that. But you don't see that in his public and popular work because, well, who's going to go read his dissertation and his you know, textbooks and things like that. Nobody wants to do that unless you're bored and have no kind of time in your hands and no life whatsoever. But for those of you with, like, families, jobs, and lives and things like that, you know, hobbies, you're not going to do that. And Bart Ehrman counts on that. Elaine Pagels counts on that. The History Channel counts on that. Why? Because the world counts on that. This is, again, why our correction and our corrective is so important. So what are our corrective scriptures for the day? 2 Timothy 3 going into chapter 4. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You're going, yeah, I, I know that one. What's your point? We've, we've done this one like a dozen times already. Keep it in your mind. It has to stay there. Scripture is inspired by God. The Gospel of Thomas is not Scripture. The Gospel of Peter is not Scripture. The Apocryphon of John is not Scripture. The Gospel of Judas is not Scripture. No, no, no early church, early church father, scholar, or anything of the sort of any repute actually held to these books as being from those people or profitable for teaching. You can actually go back and read things like the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas, which actually had debate around them for getting into the canon, getting into Scripture. And the debate was centered around, man, these things teach good stuff. They're useful. Churches like them, but they did not have apostolic testimony and witness. You're out of here. Same thing. Just because I say, well, Peter said this. Did he? Did he really? Because if the answer is no, then get out. And that's what you have with the Gospel of Peter. So Scripture is inspired, and because it is inspired, it is profitable. For what? For teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What's the goal of Christian living? Sanctification. What's the desire of my heart, mind, and life? To be like God. Therefore, I need to be taught, and I need to be teaching. I need to be corrected. I need to be reproved told when I'm wrong, and I need to be trained in righteousness. How will I do those things? I will go to Scripture to receive that training, not to something outside of Scripture. This is the mistake that we make too often. I will never forget in my hermeneutics class with Dr. John Salehammer, who was the definition of an odd bird. He used to come to class and do lectures from a post-it note, and I'm not making that up. But we were sitting in a in one of our classes, and somebody asked the question, well, well, when it comes to reading the Bible, like I get it that it's inspired by God, and so that if I don't understand it, because Scripture is understandable, because God has made it understandable, that the problem is me, that I don't understand it. So what do I do if I read a verse in Scripture and I don't understand it? And they're all like, this is a good question. This is, this is, the, st- this is the thing we're here for. And Dr. Selhammer looked at him and said, well, we'll read it again. He goes, well, what happens after I read it again and I still don't understand it? 
And Salhammer looked at him. He said, read it again. And the kid stopped. The kid, he's probably 30. Said, well, what happens when I read it again? And I still don't understand it. At that point, we got that, hmm. You know, that long, uncomfortable silence. And Dr. Salhammer goes, read it again. And at that point, you can tell that the guy was getting kind of aggravated. And Salhammer stopped. He went, okay. So you've read it again, and 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 you don't get it. Don't go somewhere else. The odds are that you have simply missed something. Read the paragraph before. Read the paragraph after. Read the chapter before. Read the chapter after. Read the book before in chronological um, understanding. Read the book after. In other words, expand your context to make sense of what you're reading. Too often, as Christians, when we get confronted with a a knot in our brains because of Scripture— we run somewhere that isn't scripture. You come to me, or you go to another Bible teacher, or you start looking in YouTube videos. You don't actually look at your Bible. What that does is it makes us susceptible to things that are not scripture. This is how the heretic gets in the front door, by going, hmm, well, you're listening to that guy over there, but you know, I know more than he does. Well, if the only criteria is you're the expert, then a better, smarter expert is somebody I should be following. And what we've created in our own minds is an assumption and a willingness to leave Scripture. Chew on it yourself first. You're, you're smart people. You can think this through and you can understand it. Read your Bible. Don't go running to commentaries first of all. Dig through it. Now, this is the cool thing. After you've come through it, You've dug in, you've kind of understood it, you've, you've put everything into proper perspective. Then go look at your outside sources, but do it in an attitude of openness and questioning. And this is why I say openness and questioning. You want to be open because the possibility that you are wrong exists. But you also want to be questioning because the possibility that the expert is wrong also exists. So weigh not just their conclusion, weigh their argument. And you will be in a position to do that because you yourself have already worked through the data. Meaning, you can actually disagree with the conclusion because at certain steps you've made you've gone left when they've gone right or vice versa. And you can actually see where they've gone left and why they've gone left and why you went right. And then you can evaluate at that step whether you're wrong and whether you disagree now with yourself. And if you do, stop. Don't keep reading. Go back and then redo your steps from that point and see if you come to the same conclusion. You still may come somewhere different. But you are now in a position to actually evaluate. You are letting Scripture teach, not necessarily some other teacher. This is good. I will never, ever, ever be mad at any Christian that comes to me and wants to actually dig through and question how I got someplace. Because that's the explanation. Too often what I get aggravated about is Christians that come to me and go, well, I don't care how you got there, just tell me the answer. No, the answer is not the point. The, the point is actually how we got there. If we don't understand how we got there, the, the, the point is meaningless. It, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. We need to actually know how we got there. So let's go back to 2 Timothy, because believe it or not, that section continues into chapter 4. Because what does Paul tell Timothy to do? To, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, he charges him to, is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Why? So that you can reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. With what? 
by preaching the word. Why? Because it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why do we need to do this? The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Notice the two sides of the coin that Paul has drawn. The people are not enduring sound doctrine. They are not following scripture, which is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Instead, they want to be told what they want to hear, and they will grab those teachers, and those teachers will feed their desires. They will turn away from the truth, and they will listen to anything. Welcome to the modern pagan. Welcome to the modern, quote-unquote, liberal Christian. Welcome to the modern, Bible-denying Christian. They have turned aside. The contrast is you, being sober in all things. How do I do that? By preaching the word in season and out of season because it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I do those things because I am grounded in scripture and because I have a working knowledge. We had so many people, and I say we, when I say we, I mean the church in general, had so many people led astray by so many different things over the last 200 years that were really garbage. I, I mean, the, the searches for the historical Jesus, and yes, I mean searches, because, you know, the, the Jesus seminar of the, what, 70s was just the latest in a line. Modern neo-orthodoxy, that car liberalism that comes out of the, uh, the 19th century, uh, the fusion in the 20th century of psychology and Christianity, which is really Gnosticism in and of itself, believe it or not, uh, Carl Jung is a type of Gnostic, if you get right down to it. All of these things are things that if you are grounded in leaning on Scripture, you should have been able to look at it and go, I'm not following that. That doesn't even make sense. Well, why would anyone do this? And the answer is because they've been getting answers, not reasons. And so the cure is to trust that the word of God actually accomplishes its job. I mean, this is what Jesus, what Jesus, what, what God said in Isaiah. And yes, Jesus is God. And so, yes, Jesus said this. My word will be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. See, God's word works. Hebrews 4 tells you the same thing. It separates bones and marrow, soul and spirit. I mean, it cuts cleanly and sharply and destroys the lofty exaltations and expectations of man because it has to, because it comes from God and it is profitable to do such things. This is literally what scripture is meant to do and how it is meant to do it. Gnostics reject that. Now, to prove you there's nothing new under the sun, we're still dealing with this. Notice we can drop names like Pagels and Airmen and Carl Jung, people from the last century and a half to two centuries even. This is not new. This is the stuff that John was warning against. These are the things that Paul was teaching against before it had even begun when you're walking through your New Testament. These are the early church heresies, the uh, Marcion the Manichees, uh, Valentinius. These are the guys, and by the way, those are names we will probably examine in this series. So if you have no idea who I just said, it'll get there. We'll have some fun with it. These are all the 
the spiritual heirs of the Gnostic movement. And the Gnostic movement is really just repackaged human dualistic thought process wrapped in a cloak of Christianity. I mean, modern-day Kabbalah, if you remember um, Madonna with a little red wrist stringy thing, and it's like Jewish yoga, spiritualism, and garbage all thrown into one. It's a type of Gnosticism. Modern-day Buddhism is a type of Gnosticism. It is a, a dualistic thinking based upon a guru, a special teacher that has your secret knowledge, and the growth out of that whereby nothing that the guru says, teaches, writes, or says could be questioned. Every cult starts out this way. Not some of them, all of them. Christian, this is not our faith. Our faith is one that is grounded in an idea that we have objectivity in life. We don't just have this pastor over here and that pastor over there or this guy over here or that guy over there or this seminary over here and that seminary over there. We have objective grounding. This is why Baptists and Presbyterians can argue with each other and love each other because while we can agree on the way of salvation, while we can agree on the structure of faith and how it works and how God redeems his people by grace through faith in Christ— we disagree on baptism and church organization. We actually can acknowledge that, hey, I think you're wrong. I just don't think that wrongness fundamentally destroys the gospel. And when you get to heaven, you'll see that I was right and you were wrong, and then you'll repent and it'll all be good. And I'm, I'm kidding. I love my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. They're awesome people and in many ways have done a better job of maintaining uh, faithful orthodoxy in the in a postmodern world than most Baptists have. But I still think they're wrong on church uh, structure, on mode of baptism, and even though I'm a covenantal Baptist, Baptist, and I'll let you look that up, and we can talk about that another time, uh, I still actually disagree with the way they interpret the covenants and how they view their covenantalism versus my covenantalism, but that's not salvation. That's not what makes a Christian a Christian. Gnostics attack at the foundation of how you access who God is what Christ is, what Christ is doing, and how those things are accessed. Those are the fundamental attacks. That's what separates the heretic from the brother I disagree with. So, what's the cure? If you haven't noticed a recurring theme from our look at Cain and now our look at the Gnostics, our cure is be grounded in the gospel, be grounded in Scripture. God has not left his children unaware and unprepared. He has sent them out into the world with every tool that they would require in order to combat evil and cast it asunder. Woe be to us if we don't actually use it. Now, what have we learned today, children? Secret Christian societies are usually neither. They're neither secret nor Christian. God has granted a public, objective standard of faith, and we call it Scripture. And our doctrine, and hence lives, are to be grounded on that public, objective standard of faith. If we are building on something else, we are building wrongly. Now, before anybody complains, no, we did not cover every single aspect of Gnosticism. That's not the point. The point is to give you an introduction. If you want to do more research, you can call me up and borrow a book, or you can like do a Google search and find out all you want to know and do a deep dive on these guys and have a blast doing it. It'll be good for you. You'll learn something. Just make sure you return to Scripture as you're doing your evaluations. This little series is meant to give you a wetting of the appetite of basic beliefs and understandings and a grounding in Scripture on how to refute them so that when you encounter these things in real time, like 
the modern-day psychologist, like the modern-day follower of Ehrman, you can remember that, oh, yeah, I have an objective standard by which I evaluate. We don't leave our Bibles behind when we go into battle. We carry them front and center, and we wield them like a weapon that they are. Hence the reason I say, when in doubt, get a bigger Bible. Now, as always, if you have questions, send them to me. I would love to get them. Info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can check out our website, practicaltheologyministries.com. There you can subscribe to our newsletter to get it emailed to your inbox every month. Um, This month might be a little bit late with quarantine things going on. I'm having a hard time getting enough people together to get some of the contributions in and just life in general. So if it's a little late, I apologize. We will eventually all be back up to full speed sooner than later, and this will all be a distant memory. I hope and pray. But you can still get past issues of the newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered. You can follow a Bible reading plan that will take you through the Bible in one year. You can find other resources as they get added. You can see the email. You can link to the church's website, Calvary Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, where you are welcome to come worship with us on Sunday mornings. You can also find the uh, live stream of that worship service on this uh, Podbean channel. Like it share it, send it out. We are hoping to get this information to as many people as possible because we have a world that so desperately needs to apply theology rightly. And so we thank you. We appreciate everything and everyone who is listening. And in the meantime, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Study your scripture. Be grounded in Christ. God bless.